Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Do me a favor and turn to someone sitting next to you and smile and say hello. Just a a nice big smile. It's cold enough outside. Let's warm it up in here a little bit. And then do me a favor. Look at me and smile. You guys should try this one time. This morning, we're going to trudge through and continue on this short series on the book of Jonah. And man, I, I am just, I'm so soaked in Jonah these days. I can't. I think the name Jonah is on my brain more than any other name in my life right now. And I've really enjoyed learning what God wants to teach us through this book. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor. And the reason we're preaching through Jonah is because I, I really want this book of Jonah to set a theological foundation for the way that we deal with one another especially in conflict. I've shamelessly stolen an image from the promotional materials for the film In the Heart of the Sea. I didn't come up with that clever graphic myself, but how perfect is it that someone put together an awesome picture of a whale under the surface and a ship floating on top of it? If you do a search on Amazon.com for the books about Jonah, the majority of the results will be children's books, which I think is really weird. Because if you read the book of Jonah with open eyes, this is the farthest thing from a children's story you're going to get. I mean, maybe David and Bathsheba is a little more, but like this is not a kid's story, and yet so many children's stories are written about it. I just did a quick search, and these are some of the covers I dug up. 21 covers, 18 covers, What do you think children are learning that the story of Jonah is about? The vast majority of books give the indication that Jonah is a story about a dude and a fish. And in a way, it is, but it's important to remember that the fish is actually a small part of the story. It's an important part, but it's a small part, but it's the only part of the story that children grow up learning. And the lesson usually is this. God tells you to do something. If you run away, he's going to send a big fish to eat you so you can't run away. And you got to do what God says no matter what. That's a part of it for sure. But what it doesn't talk about is why we run. Why God has to send fish to swallow us just to get us to do the thing which brings meaning and frame and purpose to our existence. Why is it? That so often, hearing clearly what God wants from us, we still find inside of us a strong impulse to do the opposite. And that's not a children's story per se. It is in a way. It's a universal story. And that's what the book of Jonah is really trying to describe. It is trying to expose something in our character. But at the same time, the greater purpose of Jonah is to expose something in God's character. Now, a man surviving for three days and three nights in the belly of a sea creature is really hard to believe. In fact, it's so hard to believe, scholars have spent 
years and years speculating what kind of fish was this? Could this be the thing that mythology tells us was the kraken in the days of old? Was it a giant squid, a megalodon? What was it? It can't be a whale because they have baleens and they just eat plankton. And so people were just agonizing over this for the longest time. So much so that whether you believe literally that a man survived in the belly of a fish, whether you believe that actually happened, became a kind of litmus test for whether or not you took the Bible and God seriously. I'm going to say a few things about that. First, personally, and this is just my opinion, a God who cannot pull that off is not a God worth following. If a man surviving in the belly of a fish underwater for three days and three nights is too difficult a thing for God, he's really not worth following, is he? Because I can't do it either. Why should I worship someone who's limited like I am? So I believe with all my heart that if God wanted to do that, it wouldn't be this thing where he goes, heavens, R&D department, figure out how to make a guy live in the belly of a sea creature for three days. He just commands it and it happens. And yet... Just because we believe it could happen doesn't require us to believe it did happen. I can't prove or disprove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jonah is meant to be taken as a historical record and not a parable, but I think to agonize over that is to completely and grossly miss the point of the story to begin with. Don't hear me the wrong way. I believe that probably the greater leaning of evidence is it very well did happen, partly because of the way Jesus talks about the story. He talks about it almost as though it happened and everyone knows. And yet, even if you take the opposite view, I don't believe what that says is you don't take God. It could mean that, that you don't take God seriously. But I think what it means is that we are trying to focus on what the story actually intends to reveal to us about ourselves and about God. I want to review where we left Jonah the last time we were with him. Jonah is a prophet, which means he has one job. Hear from God and open your mouth and repeat what he says. That's a prophet's job. A prophet doesn't editorialize. He just hears what God wants to say to people, and he opens his mouth and says it. God told Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the worst people alive in his day, and tell them they're messed up and God's upset and they need to repent. Which, to many people, would have been considered a suicide mission, right? Like last week I said, it would be like telling a Jew to go to Berlin in the height of Hitler's power and say, spank the Nazis for me. How's that going to go for you? And so it'd be easy to assume that the reason Jonah runs is because of fear, because he doesn't want to die. Maybe he believes this is not going to work, but the truth is he knew it would work. He knew that God would preach through him, and the people would hear, they would repent, and he would forgive them, and he could not handle that idea. Everyone Jonah knew had been hurt by the Assyrians. There wasn't a person he knew who hadn't paid a price because of the evil and wickedness of these people called the Assyrians, who made Nineveh their capital city. And so because he didn't want to be the guy responsible for preaching the message that would let the Ninevites off the hook, 
he booked a passage on a ship going entirely the opposite way, and he tried to run away from his assignment. But God did not want to let Jonah run so easily. And so he sent, sent a storm so violent that seasoned sailors were freaking out in a full panic. They were throwing their precious cargo overboard. They were ready to figure out who's responsible. They cast lots, and they find out Jonah is responsible. I don't know how they did it. They might have rolled dice, had the passenger manifest. Which one of us is? And they figure out Jonah, and they're looking around. Where's Jonah? They find him asleep below decks. They finally wake him up, and they say to him, you're responsible. He goes, you know what? You're right. It's my fault this is happening to all of us. If you want to get the storm to stop, throw me overboard. Kill me, and the seas will be calm. Now, this is important because he could just as easily have stopped the storm by saying, turn the ship around and go back east. I'll just do what I'm supposed to do, and everything will be fine. But he doesn't say that. What he says instead is, throw me overboard. It's Jonah's way of really saying, I know what I'm expected to do. I know what's going to happen if I do it, and I'd rather die than do that. I've heard those words from lots of people. It's part of the occupational hazard of being a pastor is you see people often at the end of themselves when there's nothing left and just like, you know what, I'm done. I give up, I quit, I won't, I can't, I'll never. And I've heard people say those exact words. I would rather die than do what you're saying. I know God's telling me to do it, but I would rather face death than change my heart and my attitude on this issue. And so Jonah chooses death over obedience and change. And what you see is a prayer or a poem which Jonah composes in the belly of the whale. Now, I don't think he had a piece of paper and a pen, and he's, he's like in some supernatural light writing this inside the belly of the fish. If you take this literally, it's very likely that he thought these words very deeply and recorded them sometime after he landed on shore in reflection of all of this. But as you read this prayer or this um, poem, what you see is a really descriptive account of his being thrown overboard and the way that he began to sink down, down, down to the pit. It says, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea. So the minute he goes over the gunnels of the ship, I don't know if you realize there's a distance between the, the top of the deck and the, the level of the water. And as you're falling, you see these broiling seas, and right away you're afraid. And then you hit the surface. By the way, in preparation for this message, I watched a drowning simulation video on YouTube that was put together by some people in France uh, intended to promote wear a life vest every time you're on the water. It worked. I was like, I'm wearing a life vest even when I'm on land in case I fall in the water. It was really hard to watch. And the average person will last about just under five minutes in open water. You tire and you sink much faster than you think once you're overboard in the ocean. And so he hits the water, he goes, plunges under, comes back, and as soon as he surfaces, the currents are swirling, the waves are breaking over him. And they're crashing over his face. He tries to catch his breath. He can hardly do it. And little by little, the pull of the waves and the water bring him under the surface. 
He says that the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. And I love this image. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. It's just so visual. And then he says this. He sank deeper and deeper. And, you know, in those days, I don't know if they had enough um, technology to know that the mountains we see above the surface run all the way down to the base of the seafloor. But it says here that to the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. It's a really graphic description of what it feels like to sink into the pit of despair, into a place that feels like death even while you're still alive. And some of us in this room can really identify with that description. You know, 13 years ago, on this very day, October 13th, we laid to rest a couple from our church named Dave and Hannah Jun. Some of you were around. You remember them. You remember that they lost their lives when they drowned while on vacation in Aruba. I was preaching in New York when I heard the news, and I remember hearing about the way that they lost their lives, struggling against the ocean and finally drowning. And I cannot read this passage without thinking about them. And I was amazed as I looked at my calendar to realize it was on this date 13 years ago, we laid them to rest and said goodbye. Sometimes life feels exactly like drowning. It feels like waves are crashing over. You try to breathe and you just can't catch a break. And eventually it pulls you under. From the moment the sailors woke Jonah up, His life was engulfed in noise and chaos and fury and fear and lots and lots of water. From the moment they roused him from his sleep, it was just one thing after another. And when you're going through a struggle like that, it feels like you can hardly breathe. It's like sticking your head out of the sunroof at 100 miles an hour and you can barely breathe. Do you ever feel like that? Like you're just trying to catch one little break, a little air, just a moment to get your bearings, and life won't let you. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And you can't seem to stay afloat. And that's what Jonah was experiencing. From the moment he woke up and God confronted him, he realized, I'm in big trouble, and this is not going to go away easily. And as he finally stops fighting, he can't, there's nothing left, he's reached the end of himself, and he's deep under the surface of the water, and he finally stops, and he begins to sink like a rock to the bottom. It's a kind of death. For him, it should have been literal death. And that's the moment when the fish eats him. You know, by the way, thank you in the heart of the sea for another great image. It'd be bad enough if he was drowning But at the very bottom, when he thought he couldn't go any lower, a giant sea monster swims by and swallows him up. And if I were Jonah and I was still conscious, I'd be like, seriously? Drowning wasn't bad enough? I got to get eaten right before I check out? And as he's fighting against the the gullet of this giant sea creature, after he settles down, he realizes, hold on a second, I'm still breathing. I'm still alive. It says that the fish wasn't just a hungry, 
creature in the right place at the right time. Look, oh, look, bonus. A snack just floated down from the sky. It wasn't a lucky fish finding a lucky snack. It says that God himself provided that fish. And the reason he provided the fish was not to eat Jonah and seal his doom, but to preserve him at the lowest moment when he thought, it's over for me, I'm going to die. And at that very lowest moment, God sends a fish that if we were watching the movie, we were like, oh, no, 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 no. And it's that moment that what should have been his death becomes the vessel which preserves his life. And from inside of this fish, Jonah begins to pray. It's ironic that the man of God, the prophet, this is the first prayer he prays in the whole story. So far, everyone else in the story has been praying like crazy. This is the first time the man of God prays, and the only reason he's praying is his own sorry butt is on the line. Save me, God! Help me! Isn't that true, though, for so many of us? The only thing that actually rouses us to action and prayer and dependence is when we suffer. We can watch the world burn, but it isn't until we suffer that we finally go, oh, I should get serious. I should turn to God. And so Jonah turns to God in the belly of the fish. And here's what's so important about that. When we're in the struggle and we're drowning in the trials of life, sinking into the pit, the the struggle itself is so consuming, that's all we can see. We're just flailing, struggling, fighting. We're not really thinking. We're not really engaged. We are in a survival battle, and that's all we see. But at some point when we can't fight anymore, when we really do come to the end of ourselves and we just give up, It's at that moment that a strange kind of peace settles over us. A quiet descends on our lives, and in that moment when you can't fight anymore, you're like, I just give up. I'm done. There's nothing left for me to do. Sometimes it's only when we get to that place that we actually start to think and see clearly. When you're fighting and fighting and fighting, you see enemies everywhere, and you're just trying to survive. But it's only when you reach the very bottom that a strange kind of peace or quiet settles over us because we finally admit, I've got no fight left in me. I tried everything I could to save myself from this, and I can't. And that's when often God does something in our lives to prove to us he isn't finished with us. See, no, Jonah should have died under the waves but the fish preserved his life. In that place where he thought he was dead, he found At the very bottom of the sea, he was still alive and he was still breathing. I think that's an important realization for a lot of us to come to because some of us have gone to much deeper depths than others. But sometimes at the very bottom when you think it's over, God says, is it really though? You're still drawing breath. I know it's really hard to be where you are, but aren't you still alive? And the fact that you're alive should be a signal, a message to you that I'm not done with you yet, and you're going to live to fight another day. In this place of surrender where there's nothing left for you to do, what will you think and what will you see? Where will your heart take you? The book of Jonah records that in this place of distress, he did the one thing right that he does this whole book. There's nothing left he can do to save himself. So in absolute helplessness, all he says is, God, please save me. Help me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And amazingly, 
even though the trouble he was in was self-inflicted, even though what he was going through, this pit of drowning, was because of his own choices and a consequence, that simple act of crying out to God from the bottom was enough. See, I think Jonah reached a point in his life where he really believed there was no way forward. He realized he tried to run away from God and discover the hard way. There's no way to run away from a God who is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. How do you hide from someone like that? And we watch Lord of the Rings and we think, you can't run from Sauron, he sees everything. How do you run from a God who is everywhere, can do everything, and knows everything? And so he says, I can't run anymore. But I cannot bear the thought of turning back, because if I turn back, then the people I hate the most in this world might be let off the hook. And I would rather die than live in a world where those people get to be free. I would rather die than live in a world where those people are forgiven by God. And I'll be dead before I'm the one who proclaims the forgiveness over them. There's no way. Jonah truly believed that he was stuck in a situation where there was no way forward, and so he chose death rather than change. That's what's so sad to me about his story, was none of this was necessary, and yet for Jonah and for him to see the truth, it was absolutely necessary. His hatred and unforgiveness for the Assyrians ran so deep that this man reached a point where he would rather die and forgive. I don't think we have to talk about some Old Testament prophet to relate to that feeling, do we? I've actually felt that way about fictional characters. I read enough books and watch enough movies that there are still fictional characters. I, it just still bothers me they didn't get proper justice. I want to see them pay a little more dearly for all the things they've done. But I know that many of us have people in our lives who have done such hideous things to us. We're not sure we're ever going to be able to reach a place where I want to see those people be let off the hook. In this place of deep desperation, at the end of himself, the only thing he can do is cry out for God to save him. And so he Praise his prayer in the belly of the fish. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And then he says this, basically saying, I'll do what you'd ask me to do, okay? What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. You know, when we reach the very bottom of our trials, the pit, that word pit is very much like the word belly. Okay? It's just the very bottom, the, the root of everything. He says, when you reach the bottom of your pit, you have a fork in the road, a decision to make about the way you think about God. The choices are these. You can decide either that God has abandoned me and that's why I'm in this situation. And as a result, if God has turned his back on me, then I will turn my back on him. You can see that at the bottom of your journey as an abandonment from God, which requires an abandonment of him from you. 
Or the other fork in the road is, in this lowest place I could sink, God is nonetheless right here with me, and I will turn to him and not away from him. That is the fundamental choice we all face when we get to the end of ourselves, reach the very bottom of the pit of our trials. And I have watched over 25 years real people I care about reach that point in their lives. It's so stark, it's almost visual for me. I picture this person I care about walking on a road and coming to a fork and having to choose which way they will go. It's that stark of a choice. Will I say God's abandoned me so I will abandon him? And that choice to walk this way takes you in some really, really different directions. Or will you choose to say, even in my struggle, in my despair, God is right here in it with me, and I will ask him to deliver me. That saying salvation comes from the Lord has at least two possible translations. This is a good one, but another good translation is salvation belongs to the Lord. And that statement, that phrase, means at least three things, okay? It means, one, we cannot save ourselves. Jonah learned that. He, he would struggle against the waves. He would try to run. He could do nothing to produce the kind of situation he wanted. He couldn't save himself. And then he learned the second thing, only God can save us. Now remember that he's saying this still from inside the belly of a whale or a fish or whatever it was. He doesn't yet know that God's going to actually vomit him back out and give him another second chance at life. What he knows is this, I should be dead and I'm still breathing. The fact that I'm even praying this prayer is a kind of miracle that is meant to teach me that the only way to be saved is if God gives that saving. So salvation comes from the Lord, or salvation belongs to the Lord, means we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. But it also means a third thing, that God can save whomever he wants. When it says, you know, a ride comes from Dave, that means my car is my car. I'll drive whoever I want. It's not your car. You don't have a car. I got a car. It's my car. I decide who I drive. You don't tell me. It's not like I pick you up and we're tooling along. I see a hitchhiker. I'm going to pick him up. And you say, thank you. But no, don't pick him up. I don't like those people. Hey, it isn't your car. It's my car. I decide who rides in that car. And that's the message that is really supposed to be seen here is that salvation really does belong to God. And it's his to offer to whomever he wants. So Jonah in the belly of the whale shouts out this declaration, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But he only means the first two of those things, doesn't he? I couldn't save myself and God saved me. Two out of three ain't bad. It was enough, believe it or not, to elicit God's mercy. He still was holding on to his hatred, his unforgiveness, his prejudice. But at least it was a start this is the thing that amazes me about God. He is so much nicer than I would be if I were. You guys, you're so lucky I'm not God. And I am so lucky none of you are God. Can you imagine if we were all God, how awful the universe would be? Even though Jonah can only truly mean two out of the three of those things, when the very thing God is trying to teach him was number three, and he refuses to learn it. And still, God says, that's not bad. I'll take it. Because at least you're recognizing that people cannot save themselves, and that I'm the only one who can. 
the rest of the book of Jonah reveals that Jonah hasn't really let go of his hatred and unforgiveness and prejudice. I'm comforted by that idea that dodging the bullet of drowning did not magically transform Jonah into this wonderful evangelical goody-two-shoes. Ha ha, I'm out of the fish. I'm so sorry. And he writes an 18-page sermon and delivers. He's so messed up still. You should see that. We'll see it next week. The sermon he actually preaches at Nineveh might be the worst evangelistic sermon ever preached in the history of the human race. He does what God says in the worst possible way. And everyone who's been a kid or everyone who's had a kid knows exactly what it looks like. Fine, I'll do it. And he just does it in that way, that, that terrible, ugly way. You can still see it. His heart is still hard. His heart is still cold. There is this real tension between the humility of Jonah's prayer in the whale and his character and pride in the rest of the story. And you're trying to figure out, how can this be? Was Jonah lying? Did he pull a fast one on God? Is God so gullible he actually thought Jonah meant it when he prayed in the belly of the whale? By the way, I wore this little shirt today because it has a whale on it. Some of you will notice that later. It, is that what is happening here? Is God so gullible that Jonah put on a good show? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Because, you know, we sometimes do that. We, we call those foxhole conversions. Soldiers in a war buried in a foxhole with artillery shells blowing up all around. They say to God in desperate prayer, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything you want. And then he gets them out of him and they're like, oh, yeah, that part. Well, you know, whatever. I'm breathing still, so we're all good. Is it that that just happened? That Jonah is such a good talker, he convinced God of something. Or did Jonah actually mean the words he prayed, even though later on he still reveals himself to be an unforgiving, prideful, hate-filled person? And I'm so encouraged that the truth is, even though Jonah's transformation is far from complete, God continues to show him the same kind of mercy that he's trying to show to the Ninevites. Commentator James Bruckner says this, and I think this is a powerful quote, faith in Yahweh is never as simple as pure obedience versus pure rebellion. Jonah helps us see the complexity of faith. Let me break that down for a minute. In evangelical America, we have this kind of idea that if you're all in, then everything you do has to be all God all the time. You just got to be perfect. And if you're not, oh, shame on you. Go off by yourself. Get your stuff together and come back and rejoin us. We have this idea that the people of God are a flawless people of God. A people of God who are morally consistent in every setting, in every circumstance. And so we safeguard our prejudices and our hatreds and our unforgiveness by saying, how can somebody claim to be a Christian and to love God and still do this or be that? Don't we do that all the time? Oh, oh, so you say you love God, but look at your life. How can you actually believe that about yourself? You're supposed to be perfect. Do you really want to play that game? Do you really want to play the I'm perfect and that's the only way to say that I follow God or that I love God? The amazing thing to me 
is that God accepts Jonah's prayer in the belly as genuine for himself and he answers him. He knows that Jonah still has a lot of work to do. He is a work in progress. He will deal with Jonah's unforgiveness and hatred and pride and unforgiveness later on. He will deal with it, but not right now. For right now, what Jonah needed to learn was that when you cry out to God, even out of pain that is of your own making, your God loves you, and He finds you, and He answers you. And in the very next breath, you might betray Him, just like Jonah did. Which is the truth about you? Do you actually mean the things you prayed? Or are you still the stubborn, prideful, hateful, unforgiving person you've always been? And the answer is both are true. Because knowing God, loving God, is a work in progress for all of us. That tension remains unresolved in Jonah because it remains unresolved in us. Every last one of us is a person who will honestly say things to God that we mean and honestly live lives that prove we were lying. I've said things to God that I meant with all my heart in that moment. And I've also said things to people and done things in my life that I'm deeply ashamed of. If we start to play the game, how can you say you're a Christian or how can you say you love God and still do this or be that? Which one of us is still standing at the end of that game to say that to anyone else? How can you be blank and still say you're a Christian? Well, I don't know. How can you be materialistic and say you love God? How can you tell white lies? How can you live in constant fear and worry and say you love God? How can you overdo it with food or controlled substances? How can you be lazy? How can you be callous? and still say you love God? How can you curse in that sort of cowardly, evangelical way? Oh, frick, oh, snap, oh, whatever. You know you're swearing. You could use different syllables. It's the most cowardly way to swear, isn't it? Oh, friggin', what are you really saying in your spirit, man? That doesn't mean be courageous and just say it. It means clean up your heart. Get honest. But the truth is, all of us will go to the grave a mess. We are a mess loved by God. One day He will complete the work and we don't give up trying to be less messy down here. We work at it all. But we don't look down our noses at someone else and say, I don't struggle with that. I'm not like you. How can you be that and claim to love God? You don't want to play that game. Because you will lose that game the minute someone else shines that mirror right back in your face and says, let's talk about you for just a minute. Are you really so safe in this game? And here's the thing. We often don't learn this irritating but inspiring truth about God until we reach our bottom. That God extends to us the same mercy He extends to everyone. And that our God always is willing to treat us better than we deserve. The reason God is so unusual is because He's so not like you and me. And if we had His power, we wouldn't use it the way He does. He is patient. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate. 
Think about the last time you lost your temper in a fit of rage. And if you had the power of God, what would you have done? What damage would you have wrought on the people around you and in this universe? Praise God that none of us has that power. And that the only one who does is described as slow to anger, abounding in grace, full of love. And he treats us differently than we deserve. I find that truth about God irritating and inspiring. When I find out he's willing to save me, I rejoice. When I find out he's also willing to forgive my enemy, I recoil. The truth is we are saved and we are being saved every day. We need to confront this truth about God that he is exceedingly patient and even a small act of confession even from the depths of our pit will get his attention and he will move toward us and it's because he's like that that I could keep fighting to be more and more like him each day thankfully our God is a patient teacher sometimes he sends us a big fish to give us a quiet, still place to learn what he's like and to learn who we are. I'm going to invite us to bow our heads together and let's pray. I don't know where you're stuck if you are stuck today. Maybe right now, your experience is you feel like Jonah fighting in the waves and all you have in your life right now is noise and fury, chaos and distress. It's hard to think clearly or to see clearly because you can barely catch your breath. That place at the bottom you're afraid of, don't fight it so hard. It may be the place where you finally stop fighting and you start to hear what God needs to say to you. Maybe you're stuck in a place of stubbornness. See, Jonah's problem was never that he didn't know what God wanted. He knew exactly what God wanted. God was clear. It wasn't one of those, sorry, I didn't get your email. He got it. He read it. He just deleted it couldn't face it and maybe you're stuck because you're thinking I know what he wants and because I can't do it I can't walk with God anymore to not do what I hate I have to also leave God and that is absolutely not true what you can say to God is I'm not there yet I can't forgive those people but I need you to forgive me that's where the learning starts that even though I obstinately, willingly, knowingly say to you, I defy your authority, still I know I'm culpable. And if you don't forgive me, I have no hope. I can't run from this. Don't turn away from God because you cannot turn fully to God. This turning to God is one step at a time, one day at a time, one victory at a time. And you'll be fighting and turning until the day you die. 
Maybe you're in that belly right now, down in the pit, and you're wondering if there's any future for you. You're still breathing, aren't you? You're still in this room hearing my voice. I know it feels like you're dead, but you're not dead yet. And somehow Jonah understood that in the belly of the fish. That the fact that I'm still breathing means my story isn't over yet. Though he couldn't know it, God would bring him safely to shore. And he would go on to live another day. The fact that you're still breathing now is God saying the same thing to you. I'm going to stop talking now and invite God to really begin speaking to each of you at a personal level. Listen for him. What is he trying to say to you? And what do you need to say back to him? Let's just have a few minutes of quiet and then we'll close in a final song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.